We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DeVirginia. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Greetings, spooky podcast listeners, to a Halloween edition of the Gator Nation Football Podcast presented by my bookie. What's up? I'm Alan Williams. I'm here with James DeVirgilio. We're going to talk about some stuff. Uh, no football game last week, of course. We got some fun topics, and we're going to get you ready for the Missouri game. What's up, James? It's great to be here on a Halloween week. I really wanted to. You love Halloween. I do love Halloween. I love holidays in general, and I really wanted to insert some Halloween music. Like, imagine right now you enter into the podcast, and you were going to hear some Mike Myers Halloween theming, or Thriller, or Monster Mash. But the reality is our podcast has become successful enough that using copyrighted music... (laughs) While always a no-no is definitely a no-no at our current stage. So just imagine that in your head playing right now. You can go you play in. it right now. You restart the pod, play it on a different device, you'll get the feel. And then I could do it. But either way, make that feeling happen. It is Halloween week. We want to embrace that. We hope you're all doing uh, wonderfully well wherever you are across the country. Again, it's awesome that we have listeners all across the country. And as always, if you like the content on this podcast, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, become a patron on Patreon, and... Now, after last week, Alan, you can subscribe and follow us on YouTube yeah, where we it. drop film breakdowns each and every week. If you haven't checked it out, head there. In fact, we've already had like more than 7,000 views uh, on, on some Everyone stuff we do, put out Everybody last wanted week. to see what you looked like. Yeah, think. right, which apparently surprised a lot of people. If you haven't seen what I look like and you want to be surprised, I suppose, go watch those YouTube videos. But we do break Very down. Very handsome man. Very handsome oh, man. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. We do break down the content that we talk about on the podcast and we talked about what makes Florida's offense so good as well as what makes Florida's defense so bad. So instructional video there, some good learning, some great feedback. Thank you to everybody who wrote to us about that. We will keep that content coming this week. You can look for some Missouri content, hopefully dropping on Tuesdays each and every week in the future. But as all of you know, Alan and I have other jobs, other lives. Sometimes that gets in the way, but we do our best to bring you what you want. All right. We've had some new patrons this past week, Alan. Yeah, coming on We're board. We're all here. We appreciate this. Again, we love hearing from all of you each week when you sign up to support us and then drop us a little personal note about your Gator fandom or what your Gator story is. 
Those are very cool. Very, very cool. Coming in with the medium donos and several new patrons here, Alan. Adam White, Chris Zahner, or Zayner, Charles Greer, Matthew Reddish, and John Walters. Welcome aboard. What's up, guys? At the large dono level, we have Adam, another first name. Is that like the first man himself, Adam? It could be, actually. Adam, Hmm. maybe he's married to Eve. Who knows? And then Don Bergeron. Uh, Welcome aboard as well, Don. Don, I believe, is listening from what he called to be the sort of the make-believe football mecca in Virginia, he was saying. You know, ACC country, which is is great, entertaining as well. Coming in at the Trash Dono level, definitely our most popular Dono level these days, 11 bucks a month. Ken Phelps. Ken, thanks for hosting Alan and I. Uh, We did the Daytona Beach uh, Gator Club. We did an hour of talk with Ken discussing X's and O's football on the podcast last week. That was super fun. That was really fun. Thanks for having us on, Ken. Great hosting there from you. Then we have David Mansour coming in, new dono, thank you. And then a level up from Russell and Vicky Hall, who wrote to us and said that they listen to the podcast separately and then get together and discuss it, slash argue, debate, whatever they feel about what's going on. That was super Loved cool. It. Another husband and wife dynamo team there. And another creative new category this week, Alan. <laughs> the Fire Grantham dono. We've had multiple of these, but this one comes from Barry Green, and he gives $12.15 a month. 12 of 15 was the third down conversion rate. Oh, gosh. That Florida last gave up, of course, against AM. So there's just all sorts of creativity going on here. And then last but certainly not least, we have a level up from RC to an XL dono level. RC really enjoyed the YouTube breakdowns. Thank you, RC, for that. Appreciate that greatly. Alan, tell us who is still on the throne. No drama this week. No drama. last week. He still reigns. His benevolent reign. Alexander Leventhal, thank you for your patronage. Here in the Gator Nation. And let's you know, let's talk about the other Dono legends. There's quite a few of you guys now. Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stash Me, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marcellisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, who let us know that he's not the Mark Jackson. We told him he was the Mark Jackson. That other guy's the other Mark Jackson now. Tim Honderick, James Truitt. Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, and the illustrious Dr. Matthew Galloway. Yeah, thank you all. To be a Dono legend, it's 300 bucks in total support or a one-time hundo bomb. We probably are going to have to increase this level. So this is not going to be like a blue light special. Quickly rush in and give Donos. But we can't be reading like 100 names every podcast, although we want to. So <laughs> the law of supply and demand would indicate this will probably increase thanks to all of your incredible patronage. So word to the wise, if you're trying to become a dono legend rather immediately, do it in the next couple of weeks because this is, spoiler alert, going to have to increase some. All right. Thanks, as always, for all the support. And lastly, although we don't do this often, I uh, want to give, wanna give some, some prayers and thoughts out to a friend of the program here, Mark, who hit me up on Twitter. His friend Ryan, who's very young, was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. True tragedy. Uh, Mark, we're thinking about you and your friend, and we certainly will pray for them and wish them the best as they deal with, obviously, a very difficult situation. All right, Alan, opening thoughts. Yeah, let's talk about this game. Let's talk about some stuff, some stuff being this football game and last week obviously, which we're going to break down in the college football world as well. So there's been now two weeks off since the last Gator game, a uh, you know, rather salty result for us losing to Texas A&M. You know, uh, unexpected few bye weeks here. 
So is that two weeks off? Do you think that's raised your anticipation for this game or lowered it? It's certainly kept it the same. I, I, don't, <laughs> okay. I don't know that it would matter. It certainly it's certainly it the, same. the same. I was going to say, I don't know what I was going to say there, but it's the same for me. I mean, I think had we played this game immediately or had we played this game now, same level of anticipation. And the reason for this, Alan, is we've gotten no extra practice time. Sure. Right. We record this podcast on a Monday. And today is, in fact, the first day Florida is going to have practiced since we got shut down due to COVID. So maybe if we had two more weeks of practice, I would anticipate more. I'd be really excited about it. In theory, I could anticipate some changes on defense that would get me excited. Maybe you're going to call me a pessimist. But again, as we covered at nauseum, I just don't expect anything to be radically different. So therefore, I'm not like heightened with like, man, I can't wait to see what they did on the defense. But I'm excited, as always, to watch, you know, this Florida team play. And I think this Missouri matchup, which we're going to get into, is much more interesting than what maybe meets the eye at at first blush. This is going to be an interesting game for a lot of reasons. So I'm really excited to see the game. I'm excited to see how the team responds to such a a frustrating loss with so much time off. So a lot of reasons, of course, to, to want to watch this one. Yeah, you know, I, I think my hype level for this game isn't super high. It's not like a big profile opponent, although I am more and more interested in this particular Missouri team. But I, as I thought about, you know, what we're getting to see from our offense, you know, that's such a special you know event almost every week to see them play at such a high level. I want to make sure that I stop and appreciate that. And I am intrigued to see what changes we potentially make on defense i think there is some of that okay let's see what happens but i think if we're you know if we had gone out and crushed texas a&m and the defense had played better we'd be rolling into town be like okay man we are so ready for this we're going to get ready and then it's going to be georgia week i think some of that hype is like you know deteriorated i think we have the chance to turn the narrative we'll see Uh, obviously the big game is in two weeks and that's going to be the story of the season how we play in that game. Uh, and also I'm looking forward to just having a Gator game. I, it's been weird the last two weeks, not having one. Um, my two year old, who's now a big Gator fan herself. She is constantly asking to wear Gator shirts. And every time there's a football game, she'd come running in. I was watching you know, on Saturday and she said, Gators, the Gators, the Gators. And I had to tell her each time, no, it's not the Gators. Eventually I put on a YouTube video of the Gators so that I could say, yes, this is the Gators. Um, and she got excited about it. So it'll be nice. Uh, she won't be awake for this next game, but I might have to put on some more YouTube clips. But it will be good to have a Gator football game on a college football weekend. All right, this is a night game. You know, we've had some nooners here repeatedly. Does that pique your interest at all? It does, especially because I'm a night person. You are? I prefer the night, not a morning person. I'm not like a stay-up-all-night person, you know, but I like to – I like – Let's put it this way. Dusk is my favorite time oh, same. of day. I love that. Golden hour. I love it. Golden hour in the morning is not golden hour. It's disastrous, <laughs> sad hour. I don't want to be awake watching the sunrise. But golden hour at night, incredible. So a 730 game is just absolutely perfect. The weather is supposed to be really nice on Saturday yeah. in Gainesville. And do I think the fans are going to be excited about it? I don't know. I'm 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 a sad Gator fan when it comes to home games. You guys have heard me in this podcast now for years talk about sort of the declining atmosphere in the swamp. Obviously coming off being at AM where it was so ruckus versus being at Florida's first home game. I don't expect this to be a rowdy crowd. 
Uh, Florida right now is just way behind when it comes to stadium speaker noise and ability to generate excitement using technology. We're just not there, and our fans aren't going to bring it. So Debbie Downer, me, here I am. Yeah, you are. But it's still a night game. It's been beautiful weather to watch football, and uh, I would love to be in the stadium watching, of course, Kyle Trask's deal. I want to watch him play live as much as I can because, of course, I, I hold him in such high esteem, and I think it is more exciting to watch your team play under the lights. There's sort of more of a premier feel to me than playing at noon. Uh, but I think the team's going to be, you know, excited about this as well. Halloween night, yeah, Halloween a lot of energy night. in the air. Should be a fun, fun, unique, unique game for Florida fans. Yeah, I mean, I think that does turn it for me a little bit. Um, building anticipation, Halloween night. That's strange. Usually, it's weird that it's Halloween, but not a Georgia weekend. So um, I don't know. I think there'll be some Christmas in there. Maybe a little excitement in the stadium. The fact that Missouri isn't terrible. I think if people start to catch on to that fact, that builds a little bit more anticipation for this game. Also, uh, if you're a uniform person, the Gators announced today that we're wearing some throwbacks for um, homecoming again, or what would have been homecoming maybe, I guess, whatever this is. But blue helmets. Uh, I kind of am a uniform person. I'm very intrigued by what we're going to wear. I'm not a let's just try a bunch of weird stuff i was not a fan of the swap green stuff but i like the throwback i like the classic stuff i I think the the blue helmets are going to look really nice what do you have thoughts there yeah it's fun i'm i'm generally a traditionalist in favor of the most traditional uniforms the most often when you are a power program Uh, but i like occasionally if you're florida we've already messed with uniforms sometimes i just think our designs lack style sometimes they don't look cool or they don't look beautiful this one's sort of like a smurf uniform but it's 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 fun. It's fun. It's all blue. It's 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 uh you know the circular F with orange on there. It's it's going to be one of those times when you're watching Florida play, looking at them, and it's not going to conjure up any nostalgia images for you because you don't have any. And there's something neat about that, and also something bizarre about that. And that's what's fun, I think, with uniforms. Alan, I know a lot of a lot of Gator fans were probably secretly hoping this is going to be the blackout game because it's Halloween and you're going to wear these awesome black and you know orange and blue uniforms. That didn't happen, but I, I'm I'm neutral on it. Like I said, I think it's fine. I don't love the combo. I don't hate the combo. It's not like those dastardly green swamp uniforms we wore, which I pan on the podcast for sure. Uh, so I think it'll be it'll be a fun look. I think all that really matters to me is how well our team plays. I don't care what they wear as much as how how good they look. Sure, doing if you're it. playing well, you're you're gonna look good. I think uh, you know I like this combo. I love the throwback slasher against Auburn. I thought it looked so good. I like callbacks to your tradition more than I like, you know, just doing newness stuff for newness sake. I think this kind of stuff is fun. It gives you a extra little twist on the game. And, you know, it's funny. We kind of broke some news. We don't really say that on that Scott Strickland podcast where he said that, yeah, no black uniforms, haven't had any ordered. I don't think Scott or us knew that he was breaking news in uniform world, but we got a lot of feedback on that. Um, so, yeah, Blue Helmets, Halloween night. Maybe I'm talking myself into this a little bit. No, I like it. It's going to be fun. I, I don't. This is not a negative. Again, I look at it and think, does this look cool? And I'm like, yeah, could be, could not be. It's fine. I am a huge lover of the Block F, though. Yeah. Um, one of the things that still hurts me is that Florida Field does not have the Block F on it anymore. I think that was a, an atrocious decision by them and Jay Full at the time to just move into the fast F everywhere. I just didn't like that. I thought the Block F was an iconic Florida Gator associated lettering 
And yes, it's traditional, but that was a thing. It was well, a big deal. Well, that's college football is traditional. And right. And, and I love tradition. And we had won with that block F. We didn't need a rebrand. And so I still go to the swamp and wish there wasn't a ginormous 40-yard gator head sitting on the middle of midfield. I think that yeah, just I don't takes mind the gator, but prestige. I, I'm not a big fan of the fast F either. I hate the fast F. The gator head I love, but I think applying it in like the most ginormous, massive way you can on your field, it's just... Put the block F back on there. Okay. If you're going to do a throwback week, why don't you All have right, a Scott block Strickland. F on the field? If you're listening, Scott, next season. Or maybe surprise me with Halloween this week. That'd be amazing. There you go. All right, James. Uh, <laughs> neither of us did... All that well in our picks last week. Go ahead, tell us about it. That's being kind, Alan. <laughs> uh, we both went three and eight. Oof. It was a bloodbath. It was a thriller, a slasher. We watched mm. Scream last week. We had some people over that had never seen Scream, which was always fun, by the way, to watch that movie with people that haven't seen it before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's what it was like. A lot of people. A lot of people were dying in the version of you and I here. So let's start with Syracuse at Clemson. We said 45.5 was insanely high. And I will say to defend ourselves, Alan, about half these games, we said, I would never bet this game. Oh, yeah. So at least in our defense, if we take those games out, maybe we had a 500 week. I don't know. But this game was 27 to 21 in favor of Clemson midway through the third quarter, Alan. They wind up winning 47-21. Any concern here if you're a Clemson fan? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's weird that Syracuse is their particular kryptonite. They play poorly against them every year. I don't know. I mean, they still ended up winning, obviously, very handily, but not that by that absurd 45 and a half. <laughs> so Clemson, if you're trying to bet on them with the spread, it's kind of impossible these days. Uh, I wouldn't be too concerned. Clemson, I mean, it's impossible to play perfectly every week, and that's probably what they did the previous week. Yeah, no concern here for me. In fact, and if anything, I'm pretty excited if I'm Dabo. This gives yourself, uh, you give you get film for your team. When yeah. you played lackluster, you didn't play well, you let a, a vastly inferior opponent play with you for three quarters, brings you back down to earth, lets you know, hey, if you're playing Ohio State or Alabama, you're going to lose this game. So as a coach, you like it, and you like the way they finished, but certainly not a great look there for three quarters. All right, Nebraska goes on the road to Ohio State. Scott Frost here. Uh, year three of the tenure, trying to right the ship, plays a really great first quarter, really pretty excellent first half, and then the second half happened, and Ohio State winds up covering with a controversial last-minute run-up-the-score touchdown, and they win 52-17. to Yeah, the cover with 18 seconds left, that's a little brutal for me being on the other side of that. You know, I, I don't know if this is the right measuring stick for Nebraska right now. When they started off playing well, I was like, okay, you know, I think not that I was like, oh, Ohio State does not look impressive, but Nebraska looked competent. I mean, but they let Justin Fields essentially go, I think it was 21 of 22, and the one was like a dropped pass in the end zone after a hard hit. It was essentially flawless on the day throwing the ball. So Nebraska on defense, they could not even slow them down. Although, I will say about Ohio State, they do miss J.K. Dobbs. The guys they have running the ball right now, Master Teague and whoever else, are, are not at that level that they've enjoyed the last couple of years. Yeah, Ohio State's interesting because they've lost, obviously, some huge top-line names. Yeah, I went on the pod and said this could be the most talented team they've ever had. That's a top-to-bottom look. They're not going to be able to replace the star power they had last season. The question now is, do they have a better two-deep? And will that two-deep lead to them being able to compete at an even higher level? We're going to find out. Good debut for them, though, especially starting off kind of slow against a game opponent who was ready for them. Which we probably should nice have expected win. them to start slowly. That was part of what baked into what I picked them not covering there. 
Yep, a nice one there. I think, again, Ohio State, to me, is going to be solid. We'll see what they do throughout the season. Number 23, NC State. You and I were both on this one at UNC. UNC was favored by 16. UNC pulls away at the end. It was a very close game for quite some time, and then it wasn't. They went 48-21. Yeah, you were, I remember you going back and forth whether you are going to take uh, State or UNC here. I mean, it's a good win for UNC by that margin, considering how much they struggled against you know, what is still a very bad Florida State team. They played terribly the week before. And, the, you know, UNC State's a rival. They bounce back. They win big. That's good for them. Yeah, this is a great win by UNC. And we, we mentioned good coaches will get wins like this. They won't let a really bad loss linger. Florida State, Allen, goes to Louisville. I, like an idiot, picked Florida State to be within five. Louisville has been bad this whole year. They've been surprisingly bad, given how I think they could be playing. Louisville beat Florida State 48-16. to I don't even know how to actually explain this kind of result from Florida State. You always have to give a new coach like Mike Norvell, no matter what you think about him, at least one year. You have to, no matter what. It just takes time. Sure. Even the best coaches can have really mediocre first years at a program. It's that second and third year that really show you turnaround. But this is, it's hard to understand how Willie Taggart could have tanked a program like Florida State so precipitously so quickly. Well, I mean, he had help. I mean, Jimbo didn't leave it very much. He did. For sure, Willie Tiger drove into the ground. I, I think you're going to see some uneven effort, efforts. I mean, their quarterback, uh, FSU's, uh, I forget his first name, last name Travis, but 14 of 32 for 141 yards. At some point, he was like like 9 of 25 or something stupid like that. Um, yeah, they're a hot mess. I think they will continue to be a hot mess. Occasionally, in this such a weird season, you might see something like UNC where they took advantage of UNC playing stupidly. I I thought that that was going to be a blip, and they would return to their regression to the mean of their ordinary terribleness, and they did. They did indeed. Okay, Bama takes care of Tennessee, forty-eight to seventeen. Yeah, the bloom is off the rose for the Pruitt era. I. Yeah, Tennessee's just nowhere close to Bama. Most teams aren't. Um, Bama looks really good, even without Jalen Waddle moving forward. I, I, I th- maybe I said this last week. I can't remember. I think they've already punched their ticket to the playoff. They're going to win every one of their games. Even if they lose an SEC title game, they're still going to be in the playoff, I, I would think. They're, they're just going to roll all season. It certainly looks that way. The defense getting better each and every week, more and more looking like that Ole Miss game was an anomaly, just sort of a weird blip on the screen. And Mac Jones is is excellent. You know, if you watch him play, he's an excellent quarterback. It's not fluky. Uh, it's the same thing I said about Kyle Trask. All of his skills are repeatable. He's smart. He's decisive. He's extremely accurate down the field. Losing a guy like Waddle, make make no bones about it, will affect them when they play the other elite teams. You 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 need superstar players to carry you in games like that. Uh, but right now, what Bama's doing, especially on offense, is is really a revelation. And Nick Saban comes out, Allen, and says that. Defense is no longer as important to winning college football as it once was. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I think he's overselling it a little bit, but I mean, it's crazy to hear longtime defensive coach wins with defense now saying you have to win with offense. I mean, I think that's the revolution is complete. I think that's true. And I also think, like we've talked about long on this podcast, the offense has an advantage over the defense uh, play wise, schematically. And that advantage has only increased due to the rules. 
in college, Allen, in my opinion, they have got to change this RPO rule of Agreed. allowing teams to block three yards. Sometimes it's really more than that, like LSU last year down the field. You just cannot play sound defense that way. It's taking advantage of the game. In my opinion, if this were to continue, it would lessen the the quality of play to a degree that college football should not want. So I think if they just went to the NFL RPO rule, which is one yard and it's a run pass option, meaning that if they <clears throat> if they fake that handoff, the lineman can't block more than one yard down the field. That solves a lot of problems. Uh, but for now, I think part of this is a salty Nick Saban because he spent a lot of time creating a defense that was built to stop an offense that existed 10 years ago. And that system doesn't work very well. And he's been a little hard-pressed, Allen, to change it. That's kind of the dirty little secret on Alabama is he sort of fought and fought and complained and fought and tempo and other stuff. But he hasn't really wanted to go to what I think the better defenses have gone to for whatever reason. And that's affecting Alabama at a certain level. And I think he should probably re-examine that uh, as he moves into the playoff era. Auburn. Three-point favorite on the road against Old Miss. This game was absolutely zany and wild. And Old Miss winds up losing this one 35-28. You and I both had Old Miss. Your thoughts? Yeah, I didn't know really what to think at all with this game. I mean, Auburn is, in the best of times, completely unpredictable. I mean, they're, the thing that everyone will talk about is how Auburn has benefited so much from strange officiating. You know, this time the ball seemingly touches the kickoff return man's fingers it rolls in zone Ole Miss would have you know clearly recovered and scored a touchdown again no they they could have stopped Auburn after that but Auburn has definitely benefited from some strangeness this season yeah they did there was five minutes left in the game when that happened and on replay to me clearly shows his pinky finger moving and they replayed it and they looked at it and they didn't get it right again that's now two for two in games one in the Arkansas game where Auburn would have definitely lost. And it affected the Kentucky game, too. And you're right. And the Kentucky game and this game, of course, there was time left. So we can't definitively say what would have happened. But that's just a horrible call. Either way, zany win for Auburn. One of the weirder seasons they're having. They're having a, a true 2020 season, uh, which for them is, I think, nearly every season. All right. The Clones, one of your favorite teams in all of college football, Iowa State, goes on the road to Oklahoma State. And my fighting Mike Gundy's. They win 24-21, but the line was three and a half. Yeah, let's so go. you get the win on that one. That was a good, well-fought game there. It was. And a defensive game for the Big 12. Look at that. Weird. I mean, if Oklahoma State is going to play defense like this, they have a shot to be respectable this year. And you know, I don't know if they're deserving of that number six ranking, but it's hard to say who else I would put in there at this point because they look pretty decent off on defense. And if they can get their offense rolling like it has in the past they're gonna be pretty formidable this is why one game does not uh, tell you what a college football team is like we went on week one of this podcast oklahoma state struggled mightily with tulsa had a heck of a time with them tulsa it turns out actually is pretty darn good yeah. on defense uh, but either way here they are now undefeated are they a contender no definitely not but are they a nice football team yeah they are mike gundy tends to be they have a, to be the favorite to win the big 12 at this point. yeah they tend to be consistently good and that that's that's saying something being out there in stillwater each and every year all right michigan Favored by three and a half against Minnesota. You and I both took Minnesota. We felt like the momentum of P.J. Fleck and what he was building there was going against Harbaugh's potentially flat the downward momentum. Harbaugh said to us, Alan, how's a 49-24 yeah. shellacking? I mean, this is really nice for Michigan. They looked different than they have the last couple of years, at least in one game. Again, caveat, like you said, don't take, make too much out of one game. 
Minnesota, I mean, they didn't look awful, but they could not stop that pass rush from Michigan. Michigan looked improved on offense. I mean, I don't know. I mean, could this be just the weird year Michigan needs? We'll see. Good look for Michigan. If I'm a Michigan fan, I'm I'm excited. This was the start you wanted, and it's just a start. It's just it's just one game, obviously, uh, but this is the right start for them. So now Michigan gets slotted into the keep an eye on them category. That's where they are right now. Number nine, Cincinnati goes to SMU. SMU favored by two and a half. I thought that was a rather surprising line. Turns out that was correct. You were right. Cincinnati wins 42-13. I can't pick SMU correctly regardless. So I should have known that whatever side I picked was going to go the other way. I'll just say this right now, Alan. If you're a major program, your next coach has to be one and one guy only, and that's Luke Fickle of Cincinnati. What he's done there is incredibly consistent. He's built a, an annual juggernaut that's competitive with the bigger teams at a level you'd expect to see a team with lesser talent. They're they're functional and solid every single game all year long. He's got to be a guy you're going after if you're a big school. That's the first guy I would go after. Florida State, we already talked about. They're on my sheet again. Too bad to be you, Florida State. Nice L. Penn State. Penn State. We said six and a half. Indiana. It's a lot more talent on Penn State. Indiana, though, darling sort of of the Big Ten at the bottom there. Wild, absurd game. We're going to talk about it in Coaching Corner. But for now, Indiana wins in overtime 36-35. This is an amazing game. I I was pulling for Indiana so hard. I mean, they've come so close on some of these big upsets and not been able to see it through. So great win for them. I mean, Indiana, traditionally just a doormat, have a great year for them last year. And Penn State, man, you've got to be just crushed. You're heading to a really big matchup the next week and all the wind out of your sails. Yeah, it's a program-defining win for Indiana. And also, again, replay-wise, they shouldn't have won. I mean, they should not have won. The two-point conversion in slow motion, it's clear that ball touches the ground. I just don't understand, Alan. Do you believe in magic, though, James? That's what I want to ask you. I I do believe in magic, but I I, I believe (laughs) in data and truth and integrity, and I don't understand what these replay officials are looking at. They understood that Indiana needed the win, and they let them have it. It's just wrong. It was so close, though, to me. I mean, that, that is... The narrowest margin, one way or the other. Like the Bible says, Alan, let the scales of justice not be tipped to the wealthy nor the poor. They should go. be equal for, for both parties, as yes, much as I would have wanted Indiana to win. But equally that's, bad for both parties. That's wild. We'll talk much more about this game in the coaching corner. So don't worry if you're, if you're wanting us to get down with what happened with it. We will. All right. South Carolina at LSU. We both took South Carolina. Both and I. What, what were we thinking? <laughs> hey, this is a new, this is, you know, this is obviously Will Muschamp, but look at LSU. They're terrible, but LSU used their COVID bye week apparently really well and won 52 to 24. Yeah, they played a true freshman who put up 52 points against South Carolina. I, who knows? Maybe we'll look back on this result as just one more crazy data point in an LSU and South Carolina seasons that have just made no sense so far. But, I mean, I guess good news for LSU, bad news for everybody else if they're going to play that way. Yeah, LSU's offense, in fairness to Steve Ensminger and some other guys, has seemed to continue a lot of that momentum from the Joe Burrow time. They are running all the same stuff as best they can. I think you see what Joe Brady's doing in Carolina. He's obviously an extremely good coach as well. I don't think they're going to reach that same level. But LSU's offense, this is the new LSU now. It's all offense and potentially not a lot of defense. All right, SEC roundup, just one game on here. Kentucky 
goes to Missouri, our opponent this week, and Missouri beats them 20-10 to 10 in a game that we will obviously talk more about when we turn this over and, and turn our attention to Missouri, but very slow, kind of death-by-a-thousand-paper-cuts win for Missouri. Yeah, Kentucky, I think, had like three yards of offense in this whole game or something like that. So Missouri, who had scored and hadn't stopped anybody, that has such a, another really weird game, but... I mean, if you're Missouri, you'll take a win over Kentucky for sure. All right, notes from some other games. Wake Forest beats Virginia Tech. And why am I mentioning this? Because they have a walk-on safety. A walk-on safety. No scholarship. He got three interceptions in this game, Alan. Three. Which prompted the team to chant Rudy as the game is going on, giving him a Rudy chant in live college football time. They carried him off the field. They chanted scholarship. These are This is a magical moment in college football for me, which is why I bring it up. Just a really kind of cool story about a guy getting his shot and just giving them a win over a ranked Virginia Tech team. Yeah, Rudy wishes he had that kind of production. I mean, that's awesome. Virginia Tech had been rolling on offense, and they, I mean, I guess derailed this week. A result that a lot of you probably paid attention to, but most of the country didn't, is Miami narrowly beats a below-average UVA team. 19-14, any cause for concern here? You know, I, I don't know. Uh, Miami, I think we we thought they were trending in one direction. They've kind of leveled off a little bit. Yeah, still a good win. UVA, extremely well coached, not going to give you anything. So if you keep getting wins, those add up, those yeah, help. Better but, than a loss. But not the margin you'd want to have. BYU keeps rolling. Yeah, That's the only note there. They're just smoking people. They're undefeated. They're ranked 12th. Just keep an outside eye on them. Uh, again, at this point in time, it's, it's virtually guaranteed they'll be undefeated. So we'll see what happens with them. All right, you've got some news here. Well, just that, I mean, we don't do a lot of recruiting news, but just when it pops right before we record, uh, and also because I want to say this guy's name, uh, Jeremiah Scooby-Williams. So maybe he's more known as Scooby, which if he is, that's all I want to call him. Top 100 defensive end. So nice pull for the Gators. A lot of defensive talent in this class that's currently committed. So some nice news for the Gators. One of my really good friends still as a grown adult goes by the name Scoobs. So, hey, more power to you. There you go. All right. Well, let's do a little shout out here to Galloway Orthopedics located in Tampa, provides compassionate, effective care and offers a full range of orthopedic treatment options. Whether you're a pro athlete or a weekend warrior, Galloway Orthopedics will get you back to 100% in the least amount of time possible. Galloway Orthopedics is owned and operated by Dr. Galloway, a highly trained, board-certified orthopedic surgeon. He obtained all of his degrees from UF, good job, Dr. Galloway, and worked as one of the team physicians for the Gators, including that national championship squad in 2008. You can visit his website at gallowayorthopedics.com to learn more about his services or call, and this is a great number, 727-GO-GATOR to schedule your appointment now. That's GallowayOrthopedics.com or 727-GO-GATOR. All right, it is Coaching Corner time. This was the most robust weekend of Coaching Corners we've ever had in the pod. Thanks to all of you for tweeting at us, sending us messages on Facebook, emailing us the corners. It's helpful each and every week because sometimes we do miss them. I was out python hunting in the Everglades is that a euphemism for something? Which, which, yeah, I hope not. Which really meant that I drove around in a truck because we couldn't go in the airboat because the water levels were too high and I missed the night games. Uh, and I didn't see a single python. But aside from that, Alan, thanks to all of you for sending these in. There I can go. go back and watch the ones that I was unable to see during the day. Let's begin 
with one that I did see. And this one is just indicative of things that happen each and every weekend in college football. Tennessee is playing Alabama. They're down 14-0, and they're down on, they're in the red zone. And it's fourth down and maybe two. Again, playing Alabama, it's 14-0, you're in the red zone. They kick a field goal to make it 14-3. Why, Allen, are teams that are clear underdogs ever kicking a field goal? You got to say to yourself going to the game, we're going to have to score at least 30 points to be able to compete with Alabama. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for getting off the zero early on, especially if you're in a bad down a distance or that you're outside the red zone and you like your kicker just to get yourself on the board. Now, after that, it does like nothing for you at all. Um, and in the situation they were in, as you're describing it, I would 100% go for it all the time. Yeah, the only time if you're a massive underdog to be kicking field goals against a team you're playing is if you are actually shutting them down, let's say, and you have no reason to believe they're going to score a lot of points against you, and you think you can slowly crawl your way past them. Outside of that, you have to you have to do your best to increase your own expected value. And it doesn't matter if you lose 75 to nothing or 30 to 20. All that matters is you lost. So give your team the best chance to win. Do not go kick field goals. Especially early on like that. I mean, don't well, do it. Kicking field goals late is stupid. But yeah, I mean, if you cut that to 14-7, all of a sudden you're in the game a little bit. And your bit. team feels belief. And the other team knows you're here to try to win the game, not just take moral victories and points on the scoreboard. It happens all the time. Just don't understand it. Know your position. Know how many points you've got to make up. You've got to take bigger risks when you're the underdog. Bigger risks. More variance. Okay. Missouri. This one, to me, violates so many of my own principles. Missouri goes for it on fourth and one from the 10-yard line after an eight-minute drive in the middle of the third quarter. So they got the ball to start the third quarter, drove half the time off, get all the way down after converting two other fourth downs, which I agreed with them going for because they were like around midfield. Agree with those. They find themselves fourth and one from the 10-yard line. They're winning 10 to three. That's the key. They're winning 10 to three. They go for it, and they get stopped. At this point in time, Kentucky had all of like 60 yards of total offense. So do you like them going for this here, or would you want to see them kick a field goal? As the, you know, I've staked out my claim here of go for it on fourth and short. So I don't mind it, even though I I know what you're going to say here, that a field goal will put you up two scores. Um, But fourth and one, you know, in the red zone is, is normally where I like to be aggressive. So I, I don't want to kill them for that at all. I mean, I, I'd still would probably do it again. I like it. I'll kill them for it. This is what's fun about coaching in college football is first of all, there's no perfect answer here. A lot of it's preference, but two, mathematically, you're looking at what increases my chance to win most significantly. And based upon the fact that you were absolutely shutting down Kentucky's offense, you get a field goal there, you go up two scores the odds of you winning the game now significantly increase. Whereas if you get the first down, you still have to score a touchdown from there, which you may not. Um, of course, you do get the benefit of field position coming back the other way if you stop them. Again, in general, I like aggression. You do too, Alan. In general, I'm going for the ball. I'm going for this at fourth and one from the 10. But in this kind of game, that's why it's important to pay attention sure. to the tactics and the optics. And I, would I would be much okay. preferred a field goal. I would be okay kicking a field goal here too, the situationally, obviously. But, you know... Fourth and one is just too tantalizing. And it depends on, too, like how you feel about your run game. And if you're just picking it up at will, 
you can QB sneak or you just like, yeah, we're running up to the left side. We're getting three yards a pop every time we can get like, you know, half a yard. It's, you know, different scenarios, different games. And to be fair to Missouri, they were. They were doing that. But you can see, all of you listeners out there, you can hear, I suppose, that I so strongly prefer this two-score rule that I will pretty much tactically abide by it in most scenarios. All right, Penn State, 21-20. They're down. Everyone has seen this play now. Indiana is going to let them score. Something yes. we had hoped Florida would have done with AM last week, actually, but we didn't because we're not that creative. And Penn State obliges and runs in the end zone, Kind of looking around, thinking maybe I should stop. Doesn't stop. <laughs> Goes right into the end zone. And we know what happens from there. It leads to a loss from almost a certain win if he falls down. Just run the clock down. Kick an extra point. Even even run another play with 10 seconds left if you want. Penn State had a timeout. And they lose. Obviously, we know the right answer here is to go down. I'm going to ask you this instead. The same thing happened to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And, and Todd Gurley, who has fallen down before. He's done it before. He's aware of it. Found himself in a much more precarious situation where the defender did maybe one of the greatest fake tackle jobs I've ever seen. Like he actually hung on to Gurley for a yard or two and then let him go and Gurley goes in the end zone. But what I want to ask you is this. Gurley said they had mentioned in the huddle already, if they try to let you score, go down. So communication was there. What can teams do, Alan, to prevent this from happening? Because in the case of Penn State, they didn't know. They weren't thinking about it. In the case of, of the Falcons, they were thinking about it, and it still didn't happen. Yeah, the girl thing is hilarious. If you Google search an image, you'll see him uh, on the ground, like kind of like over the end zone, and the Lions defenders are signaling touchdown. Like they're, you never see the opposing team signaling touchdown, that, oh, he got in. Yeah, Gurley should have definitely done this. I, this is so hard, like, especially if you're not anticipating like the Penn State guys. There's really college kids. I would not be able to expect them to have the conviction is what it would take, right, to go down and not score. And if you haven't prepped them for it, because the downside of going of kneeling when your coach would have wanted you to score is too high, I think, for you, unless you've been told specifically not to. And I, and I will say this in defense of coaches. So when I did coach the professional flag football team, we had a two-week two weekend session of camp, certainly not nearly as much as college football teams have, but we also had far fewer players, right? A roster of 15 versus a roster of 185 scholarship guys. There's only so much you can cover. And although you may be a savant at watching football, everything you know is often way more than what an 18, 19, or 20-year-old knows. And you're also watching the game situationally at a macro level. And they're a, a kid playing on a football team wanting to get carries and score a touchdown. And so oftentimes, what am I saying? Oftentimes, college football players are disconnected from the macro thoughts. They're so granular. Do your job. Do this thing. In my opinion, Alan, they're overcoached to think about the granular. And they're undercoached to think about the game. Right. Which is a big problem, I think, in college football. If I were coaching, I would focus way more on teaching them to think about the game and that's what happens is they obviously aren't there yet. Uh, and you could coach it and you actually could do it perfectly like the Falcons did. Talk about it, practice it, know it, and still mess up because we're humans. But Gurley is much more forgivable because he tried to fall down. He recognized it than Penn State's where the guy's looking around confused and walks in the end zone. Uh, either way, brutal way to lose. Yeah, I would say definitely not on the Penn State kid. The coaches, depending on what the coaches told him, if the coaches didn't tell him to go down, 
then he has to like walk it in there, I think. And something I can imagine that all of college football will be practicing and the NFL this week will be, hey, here's the film. Here's what happened. Every team does that. They show you film around the country and kind of say, let's make sure we pay attention to this because this could cost us a football game. The fact that it cost two teams a win in one weekend was remarkable. Old Miss clock management. Here's the note. There's the spoiler alert. This clock stuff mismanagement. kills me. So there's a minute and 11 seconds left and they are down a touchdown with two timeouts left. That's so much time in college football, Alan. They don't use a single timeout until there are eight seconds left, and they are now all the way down at Auburn's you know, 25, 30-yard line. Then they run one more play, and then they get one more play after that, and they take home with them, down still remaining, and a timeout. <laughs> they let the clock run multiple times when they could have called a timeout. What What is happening here? I don't. Maybe Lane thought he could trade him in for free entry to the club later. I to to manage it in such a way that you still have one left and not score is like a. It's pretty wild. It's beyond pretty wild. Just you can't do that. You have to, as a coach, you have to commit yourself to losing the game by not converting fourth down. If you have a minute and 11 seconds left, Alan, with two timeouts, the only way I'm losing that game as a coach is because I run out of downs. I cannot run out of time. I just cannot do it in college football, and he did it. I mean, not a good look there. Really frustrating if you're an Ole Miss fan with how that was managed from Lane Kiffin. He's coached way too many games to have that issue. All right, switching gears to the NFL. First of all, the 1 o'clock games, if you like the NFL, were absolutely manic. They all finished it was that's why I love the NFL, but they're all finishing with just the most absurd things happening. The Titans found themselves in the midst of an epic comeback against the Steelers. They were getting beat like a drum. They're down twenty. So much so that I stopped watching because like this game is over. Clearly over, right? Not over. They're down twenty seven seventeen. Very interesting situation here. It's fourth and goal from the one yard line, and there's eight minutes left. There's a lot happening here. I love Mike Vrabel. I think he's one of the most savvy coaches. We talked about something he did last week, and here he is again this week. He chooses to go for it. They wind up throwing a pass, not getting it, but there is clear pass interference. So in all likelihood, the play would have been a touchdown had they not been held. So good execution of the play. But I want to talk about the call because this is interesting. They are down 10 points, which is two scores. Do you like going for it here, fourth and one? Because the expected value on the one-yard line in the NFL is higher to always go for it than to not. Certainly. I think you have to because you can kick it. An NFL kicker you know, should be able to kick a field goal from quite a distance. Now they did not do so at the end of the game and lost the game when Guskowski missed it. But certainly – I don't see a reason not to, honestly. So this is funny. I'm going to take the other side in this situation. I know you are. And it's weird because I'm rarely the kick the field goal guy. But this is my two-score rule. And more importantly, this is time left in the game. So if there's if it's the beginning of the fourth quarter, 100% go for it. 100%. Eight minutes left is very interesting. Because the Steelers have been playing good offense all day long. They had started to struggle here in the fourth quarter. So you had reason to believe your defense could slow them down. But with eight minutes left, things get real dicey if you don't get that. Because now you're down two scores and you're basically probably down to an onside kick situation in the NFL. Whereas if you kick a field goal, you're going to put so much game pressure on the Steelers that now you're only within one score. There's tons of time left. You might get two more possessions. You're going to basically swing that momentum meter all the way to them. And that's going to be like a 99% chance. So what I'm saying, Alan, is I'm going to take my 99% chance to put the pressure entirely on them 
and go for the touchdown later than to do a 50% chance of scoring a touchdown and then potentially really lessening my chances of winning. With all those things being said, of course, they did get it. They did wind up having a chance to tie this game at the end, missed a field goal. There's not a perfect situation in that one. That's a nuanced feel. But right. If it's not fourth and one, I think I would agree with you. Correct. When you get down so close, I mean, you can kick a field goal from such great distance. You don't often have a chance to punch it in fourth and one. So Indeed. Something fun to think about. Again, showing you these situations that occur, how every factor matters. And that's kind of what good coaches need to take into. Every single factor matters. All right. Lastly, wild Sunday night football game. It was. Seahawks versus the Cardinals. Um, great things happening here. First of all, we talk a lot on the show, especially as the season goes on, about game theory. And we talk about a meta strategy, which is the strategy you generally want to use all the time, which we just talked about. Fourth and goal from the one is typically something we would always want you to go for. But sometimes you use an exploitative strategy where it wouldn't even make expected value sense, but you use it because it's it's a change of pace. It's a way to steal a big play. It's a silly play to do all the time, a great play to do very rarely. That is what the Cardinals did. The Cardinals showed what I'm going to call like engage eight if you've played Madden. Basically blitz everyone and keep three guys back. It showed that pre-snap. Russell Wilson sees it. It's third and 14. Now, Russell Wilson is a really smart quarterback. He probably should have thought for a second, are they really going to suicide blitz me right here? He did not. Instead, upon snapping the ball, they dropped everyone back and only rushed four. And they dropped him right back into the lanes he would check to on a hot read. And they got a pick. Beautiful, beautiful, high-risk, high-reward play. I loved every piece of that. And then the other side happened. They drive down with like three or four runs, Allen, and they're on the 18-yard line of Seattle. This game is almost certainly over almost certainly over. The Cardinals on first down had take a five-yard loss. No problem. They're still in great shape. And then the mayhem ensues. They decide to rush their field goal unit out, which was not ready to kick a field goal on second and 15. They get them out there just in time. Then they call timeout. And during this timeout, of course, the kicker, their kicker actually makes the field goal to win the game. But Kingsbury has called a timeout, which then Ice is his own kicker. He has to go kick it again, and he misses. Now, the Cardinals wind up winning the game later, but one of the more bizarre scenarios, to Kingsbury's credit, he immediately said it was a catastrophe. It was entirely his fault. He handled the situation wrong. He panicked and got conservative, which is what good coaches should do. He told you the truth. He panicked. He got conservative, but ridiculous sequence there. Yeah. Handling those late-game strategic moments are difficult, and I love that he said that he panicked. And got conservative. So, I mean, it happens to the best of coaches when you're trying to be so precise, you can overthink it or rush it or there's lots of ways to mess it up. And they definitely did. Freezing your own kicker is a, is a fun one. Absolutely wild. All right. Let's put last week in the rearview mirror. Let's focus on Halloween week in the Missouri matchup. This Missouri prep segment is brought to you by my bookie. It is winning season at my bookie. Winning season means doubling your first deposit and winning big. You can bet on all sports, including live bets. It's simple. Make your picks. Win big. Collect your cash. Invest in your intuition. Select from hundreds of future bets on many sports or bet games in real time using MyBookie's live betting. Use the promo code GATORNATION and double your first deposit. New players get up to $1,000 in free play. So if you give 1000 you get 1000 added to your account. Sign up now as your winning season begins today. Visit mybookie.ag 
and another promo code GatorNation for a 100% deposit match up to $1,000. Again, that's mybookie.ag, promo code GatorNation. Let's talk about the Missouri Tigers. They are 2-2. Two two. We are playing them Halloween night. Of course, Gators are ranked number 9. They're 2-1. and one. Florida is currently favored by 13 in this game. Interesting number there for me. Um, Florida won 23-6 last year. This is obviously a different Missouri team, different head coach, different quarterback. It's Halloween, James. You got a note here. Does this scare you more? Do you want? Are you scary? Are you scared on a scary Halloween? It does, especially now that the betting line is minus thirteen. Everything's adding oh, up, man. Here, right? Unlucky number. Uh, Missouri is always a scary team for Florida. If you look at the history, it's not flattering. They've beat us like a drum multiple times. Even when we tend to beat them, a lot of times the game is weird and sloggy and sloppy. And last year, although we handled them 23-6, to 6, the game was, you know, it was interesting. It, it, was, closer, it was closer than what that score looked like. Yeah. Despite looking at the stats, Trask was 23 of 35 for 282 and two touchdowns and no picks. That's a great day at the office. But the game was certainly contestable for a while it was uneven and nothing was coming all that easily you felt like florida was in control but not so much that um they were walking away with it it was the the margin was too close for much of the game correct i'm really excited alan to get through the overview here and talk about what's in front of us because the film analysis of this game i can tell you was really interesting it's always fun to break down a new coach as opposed to seeing a previous one and i love 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 Ryan Walters, their defensive coordinator. We've talked about him before, so I love breaking down his defense. He's one of my favorite coordinators in the entire country. Although I didn't mention him last week as a coordinator Florida would want to hire, it's solely because it's pretty unlikely you would steal a guy from your own division like that. You can. It's possible. He would certainly top my list. We've talked about him before. He's fantastic. So a lot of good stuff to look into with this matchup. Well, you know, Dan Mullen famously... Uh, said when we hired Jeff Collins away from him that it was a lateral move. Uh, so I wonder if he still feels that way if he tries to steal somebody else from the conference. So as you mentioned, Eli Drinkwitz, their first-year coach, came from App State, offensive coordinator background, has a long-time connection with Gus Malzahn. They worked together coaching high school. So the talent is a huge edge for Florida, right? So currently Missouri's 46. They have no five stars, of course, seven four-stars. Florida, by comparison, four five stars and 44 four stars. So you have the seventh in the composite, which is always changing and moving around a little bit, which is kind of funny. Okay, so returning starters in production, edge Florida here. So Missouri actually returns 13 starters, five on offense, eight on defense, and Florida does 12. You know, there's looking at the coaching staff, it's interesting because there's no offensive coordinator. It's just Eli himself, uh, whereas Florida, you know, Dan Mullen probably serves a largely same function, but would list Brian Johnson or previously Hevesy and Gonzalez as co-OCs. So in their structure, there is no offensive coordinator. And you mentioned Ryan Walters, their defensive coordinator. So let's go ahead and talk about Missouri itself. Uh, they've got a freshman quarterback, Connor Bazelak. So when you watch them, this is a different Missouri team, right, than the Barry Odom-led, if you're thinking that offense. War is that the same? War is that different? 
felt completely different from what they were doing last year. And of course, Missouri's had good offenses, right? They had Drew Locke. Uh, this this offense very different. Most importantly, for the for the Florida fans out there that want to talk a lot about how Dan Mullen could win a national title despite not recruiting elite talent, this is an example of how a team can vastly overachieve their their recruiting ranking. And there's two ways to look at this, and just it's it's worth a brief exploration and explanation of this. Missouri can beat Florida because they're extremely well coached right now. They're feeling confident. They have key players at key positions. But make no mistake about it, Florida is vastly superior athletically to Missouri across the board. But football in a one-game scenario does not always work that way. The problem is, Alan, when you get elite coaching with elite talent, schools like Missouri just can't beat them, just can't be done, not consistently. So I like to mention that there is that this is an excellent job on film so far by Drinkwitz. This team is extremely improved, not only... Not only from one game one to this game, but just in general. On film, they're a different Missouri team than what we've seen. Barry Odom and their defense, always solid. Ryan Walters has been there for five years. So there's a lot of continuity there. But on offense, what you just teed up, different offense. This is a spread offense. It's mainly east-west. You could think of this like an Urban Meyer 1.0 spread offense, just less quarterback running. So how if you were looking at it, from like Malzahn's coaching tree, like how much would it vary from that? Very different. So it's way less gimmicky. Malzahn is like all about what I think is stupid complexity, as I would call it. Like things that don't really make a lot of sense, X's and O's wise, but he does them. They're like real gadgety, kind of super creative. This is the total opposite of that. And in fact, Drinkowitz would say so. You can pull up interviews where he talks about how him and Malzahn came from the same tree, but like went in vastly different directions. As best as I can put it, this is very much an Urban Meyer 1.0 system with just less quarterback running, but it is a modern version of the 1.0. And what I mean by that is the routes are extremely simple. The concepts, very, very simple. It involves using pre-snap motion to kind of get what you want. And it is very high school in that regard. And, and the biggest thing as we get into the breakdown, Alan, are the weaknesses, which we're going to talk about. But the strengths is that because it's simple... It's easy for all of the players to execute. And Eli himself would say that he over-focuses on execution rather than complexity. And that's not at all a bad thing to be a football coach and have that on your side. I think it's going to hurt you when you face teams that are also, again, equally coached. But right now you're seeing that on film. Uh, Basilak is interesting. He was a four-star quarterback from Ohio, a top 10 quarterback recruit, despite running the triple option. He was a wishbone triple option quarterback, which is an old school offense, obviously. He throws it very well. He looks very good on film. Very poised for very poised, very calm. They've got a proven running back in uh, Larry Roundtree, the third, number 34, who's, who has gashed us in the past. You who probably has recognize hurt him. us badly in the past, who just destroyed Kentucky. Receiving wise, they're more interesting. They don't really have a proven target. They rely a lot on number nine, Jalen Knox. He's the guy they throw the ball the most often to, especially downfield. But no one there that really scares you on film. They primarily throw the ball to the running back, Tyler Batty, wearing number one. And last week, Allen, this offense ran 93 plays against Kentucky. That's a lot. 66% of these plays were run. They were actually more balanced against LSU, pretty much 50-50 which tells you something good about Drinkowitz. He is not a I'm going to just run the ball kind of guy. He's taking what you give him. So that already makes him more dangerous as a coordinator. Any good coordinator should be a take what you give him kind of guy, and he is. So here is what we should look for Missouri to do, Alan. And this this is kind of the fun stuff here. This is a fun film breakdown. 
So Missouri is going to have lots of pre-snap motion. In fact, on almost every single play, somebody's going to go in motion, and sometimes they're going to have two guys going in motion. Urban used to do this all the time as well. He used to love to flip the strong side and the weak side, put your defenders in conflict. Again, most of their goal is to do east-west attacking, a staple of Urban Meyer 1.0 as well. They don't really want to attack you north-south. They want to stretch you east-west. They're going to spread the field. They're going to run a lot of hitch routes, a lot of underneath routes, a lot of routes where the receiver breaks back towards the quarterback. Benefit of these, easy to throw. One reason why you'd run those in high school. Those are very easy to throw. They're body throws, if you will. The quarterback puts it to a guy's numbers first having to throw it into a window or lead him somewhere. Uh, of course, we mentioned, you know, Bazelak coming from a triple option. He can run the ball. He's a capable runner. I wouldn't say he's like a plus runner, but he's a good runner. You can think of him being like a Joe Burrow. Uh, solid, can escape. If you don't account for him, he can hurt you. And here's here's the kicker on film. Half of their passes, half of their passes with Bazelak a quarterback, are five yards or less. Okay, only 7% have traveled more than 20 yards in the air, and they have just two completions. So they threw for over 400 yards against LSU. Only two of those balls went further than 20 yards. That's telling you, again, high school coordinator, most high schools are not going to have quarterbacks that can drop balls into buckets down the field. Everything is going to be efficient, consistent, predictable, march down the field. So does it look cleanly like done to you that they look like they know what they're doing and that they're effective at it. Absolutely. And that's the key. They're ruthlessly effective with what they do. They love the middle of the field. Spoiler alert. That's obviously hurt us all year long. 77% of their, of their passes go here. Most of their East West, just like urban wanted to was to spread you wide so they could hit the middle via a run or a pass. A lot of these passes are simple. The best thing about Basiliak on film is he's very calm He doesn't read the whole field. He's probably reading just half the field. In fact, on film, you can rarely find him ever reading the whole field, which is also smart management of a quarterback. So, so far, this team to me, Alan, looks like a really efficient, effective freshman quarterback team running a simple offense where the plays that are being called are very effective if they know what zone you're in. So lastly, and probably most importantly, they will run coverage beaters on you if they know what you're in. In fact, they abused Kentucky multiple times with some very, very simple plays. I'm going to show you on film on YouTube this week. And that is how their offense runs. So as this game approaches, Alan, if you've listened to this podcast for a long time, you should immediately be thinking, hmm, this sounds like a matchup Grantham could struggle with. It's more of a modern offense. It's coverage-oriented beaters. It loves to go against zone defenses. It feasts on teams not being in the proper numbers. There's lots of pre-snap motion to confuse defenders. On paper, this doesn't look so great, especially given that Basilak has been so effective as a quarterback. Grantham struggles against quarterbacks who are smart and accurate. So far, he looks pretty smart and accurate. So it's an interesting table set for what Florida's defense is going to wind up doing. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how much we're able to confuse him. As you said, that he's he's been efficient and effective, but not... Uh, I don't think playing at such a high level mentally or command of the game, like you would have mentioned with a Kyle Trask, who's like, we'll be able to diagnose what you're doing all the time. And you do this, he'll do this. Um, I'll, I'll have a question about LSU that I'll save for a second here. Go ahead and say what you think Florida should do in this scenario. So we're going to talk from now on in the podcast only about what Florida should do. Because predicting what Grantham is going to do 
as we mentioned before, is just not worth it. Some of you have asked us to do that. It's just not worth it. It's ineffective. It's not good. Hopefully you saw that on the film breakdown. I don't like it. I'm not going to cover it. We're going to cover what I think should happen if we were drawing up a good plan to stop them. First of all, we have to be sound regarding the numbers. Anytime you face an Urban Meyer 1.0 style of offense, you have to get your numbers correct. That means that you can't be playing down one or two guys in the run. They're going to get you. And you can't be playing you know, down one or two guys in the past. They're going to get you. You have to play numbers solid. You have to play side solid. You can't look on your weak side and say, I'm going to leave myself down a man because just like Urban would run, we'd run that little speed option and they're going to get you. Missouri will do the same thing. So one, get your numbers right. Two, do not blow coverages. Do not blow your coverage. And what I mean by that is do not do someone else's job. If you do, you can rest assured that their routes are going to punish you because they're always built to see if you're going to take the bait and leave your zone or leave your spot, in which case they will hit you for a big play. Of course, I'm a huge fan of playing close to the line of scrimmage against teams that run this kind of offense. If you've been a Gator fan long enough, you'll remember that Nick Saban once upon a time would come right up in the face of the Florida offense and really disrupt our timing on those east-west kind of plays. It puts their players close to the line. It eliminates the space that you can operate in. I would like to see Florida do that. Offenses like this thrive on teams being backed up off of them, which Kentucky Allen was inexplicably playing backed up off of them almost the entire game. So get in there, disrupt the timing, disrupt the routes. Look for the underneath routes frequently. We'll talk about on film what that looks like. And mainly, Allen, if I want to sum up the strategy into one basic thing, it is force a team like Missouri to only complete passes over the top into tight windows. Make a triple option high school quarterback who is accurate and has done things well. Complete 10 to 12 downfield passes in this game. Do not let him hit hitch routes, soft underneath routes, dumps to the running back, check downs. Just take all those away and say, beat my guys down the field consistently all game long. And you know what? Who cares if you give up the occasional big play touchdown, Allen? Because our offense is fantastic. Take the chance that you can get them off rhythm and frustrated to increase our margin for winning. That, I think, again, is the meta, meta strategy there is make them throw over the top, make them throw the ball further than five or fewer yards. And lastly, and very occasionally, use the exploitative strategy in zone. Zones do confuse on players, but you have to get it right and you got to do it post-snap. So confuse them much like the Cardinals did against the Seahawks. Line up in one thing, move to another thing, attempt to rob some tendencies that he's already put on film. That's what I would do if I were the DC. I can pray and hope that Florida's going to do it. Again, that would be utterly shocking if we came up and lined up like this. I fully expect us to wind up trying to run zone, trying to do what we've been doing. And Allen, to be clean about this, that could be a problem. There's plenty of ways Missouri can move the ball up and down the field and score on us just like they did to LSU. This right, offense so, is capable of doing that. So they really carded of LSU. They've put some points up in every game, but they lost up like 50 against LSU. What made them so effective in that game particularly? Well, LSU blew multiple coverages to the point to where people were wide open. So like any young quarterback, Basilak is basically looking at one read. That's really all he does. And if you give him a little bit more time, his second best attribute is he will always climb the pocket. Because he was a running quarterback, he's not afraid of a pocket collapsing around him. He's not afraid of contact. So he'll just step up into it and then he'll try to get a second look. It's not on time. It's not perfect. Uh, but LSU was consistently, consistently blowing coverages. Why, Allen? The pre-snap motion messed them up. They messed up their switches. They messed up their handoffs. They played way off of Missouri, which gave them plenty of time to hit those soft east-west routes. And then eventually Missouri would hit him with a with a double move, right? Uh, they basically did everything that you could do wrong, hence that Bo Pelini face on the internet of being super exasperated. 
And to be sure, if we do that same thing, Connor Bazelak will will read the proper play correctly first. And last but not least, and to put the put the bow on their offense, a good high school football coach has got to be extremely successful with his play calls going to the first read. Because most high school quarterbacks just are not going to be able to make more than one read effectively. So you have to design your plays where when you call it, you feel pretty darn good. The first read's going to be there. And that's what happened against LSU. And it's also what happened against Kentucky. It just so happened that with Kentucky, they're much more sound than LSU. Missouri took a very methodical approach. It took longer. They weren't busting. They didn't want to take any chances. And when they took deep chances, Allen, it was ugly. He didn't read it correctly. He missed open receivers. He wasn't on target. So to me, again, the chink in the armor is right there. The guy's not ready for those kind of complicated throws yet. Make him prove that. But he's already put on film that if you try to play zone on him, if you try to play too deep, if you try to back off of him, he loves tearing you up underneath. He likes to throw the ball into those zone windows. He's comfortable doing it. Drinkowitz is comfortable scheming it. I would hate to see Florida come out and do the same thing two teams in a row. Right. It would be terrible to watch him complete five-yard pass after five-yard pass over and over again for the entire game. Let's hope we do not see that. Okay, the Missouri defense, you've talked about liking their D.C. Not a ton of talent. I mean, one guy that you might know around the the country is Nick Bolton, their linebacker number 32. Kind of an all-SEC type of guy out of nowhere becoming a star for them. So, obviously some continuity on the defensive side of the ball. So we talked about the offense being very different. Is there talk about what they're doing and maybe what, what they're doing differently now that Barry Odom is not there. They're not doing anything differently because it tells you how much autonomy and power Barry Odom gave, gave Ryan Walters. He gave him everything. He gave him the keys to the defense. This guy, if you, if it's the first time you've heard of him, if it's your first year listening to this podcast, Ryan Walters, one of the youngest DCs in all of college football. He's in his early thirties. He is my kind of DC. I'm going to call him a modern DC. Why? He always gets the numbers right. He plays a ton of cover one man. And then, of course, he'll adjust to what you're running. There are times in football to run a cover three, a cover four, a Tampa two. There's reasons to run those defenses. But as a base defense, he runs the proper defense for stopping spread offenses. Now, his problem, Allen, is what? He goes up against LSU. He's got seven four stars on the entire roster only half those guys are on defense and not a single one of them is even a starter on their defense their highest ranked guys are three stars so when you're playing lsu's five stars and you got to cover them man to man they do a pretty darn good job of it but they can't consistently lock them down so that's kind of their weakness but you put him on a good team allen i think this guy is going to be a, a stratospheric superstar on defense so what do they do right they always play the numbers correctly and that's what makes it so hard for teams to have success. Despite LSU throwing the ball for 400-plus yards against them, they only ran it for 50. For 50. And a lot of that is because they just don't give you opportunities to run the football. They're one of the best teams against the run, Allen. Um, their safety, Joshua Bledstow, is fantastic. It's one of the reasons they can play cover one so well. Despite him being under-recruited, he's very, very smart. He's excellent being there by himself on the back end, jumping routes, wreaking havoc. Where they struggle is they don't have a good pass rush. And that's a big difference. Previous Barry Odom, previous installations of Missouri, they always had a good pass rush. They do not have a good pass rush this year. They're struggling to get to the quarterback. So naturally, uh, Ryan Walters does something he should do. They frequently play that cover one-man defense, and they blitz their free guy. They blitz him all the time. Hey, if it's not a run, I'm going, right? Trying to get an extra guy to the quarterback. They trust their back end to cover. So what this means is, 
they're going to feel really comfortable playing us heavy man just like they did last year. They played more than 50% of the snaps in man defense. They're going to play close to the line of scrimmage. We struggled to hit them with big plays in that game, which prompted us to go on the podcast, Alan, and talk about how Dan Mullen has to lean into Dan Mullen 2.0. He has to build better offensive plays to attack teams that are in man. Here is my excitement. You can bet a whole lot of money that Missouri is going to trust their cover one man defense, off man and press man, and they are not going to change what they did last year because they had success. And this is going to be the test for Dan Mullen 2.0. This is going to be it. Do we run better plays? Do we use all the sets we've already seen? Have we graduated to the next level where we can face a team that's going to want to really get up there and challenge us and move the ball with enough ease that we score a ton of points on them? Or is it kind of like last year where we do move the ball, but every yard is tough? Huge question, huge situation. And again, the only reason Missouri is even remotely capable of this is how well on film they're taught to play these defenses. You don't mess them up with shifts. You don't confuse them. You're not going to blow zones. They are super sound in what they do. You just have to simply beat them with execution, which is, again, what a coach is supposed to do. Make the players win the game. Don't win or lose the game as a coach. Yeah, they're interesting. Um, obviously, they can be had. Obviously, you can out-talent them. I think, they're, as you said, their pass rush leaves a lot to be desired. So you talked about Dan Mullen 2.0, running some man beaters, basically scheming our way into open guys through you know, somewhat simple route combinations, but effective route combinations. Um, is there anything else that you want to see us do to really put them in a bind. Yeah, we need to bring those bunch sets out. So obviously, if you bunch set, it's really hard to man a bunch, especially if you wind up using a bunch set. Here's a bunch that I'd love to see. Bunch Kyle Pitts and Tony near each other. Yeah. All kinds of problems. Because if you want to double one of them, it's really hard to double one of them if both of those guys are in a bunch. Because now if they wind up running any kind of like crosser between five and eight yards, nearly impossible to stop both of them doing it. So that's going to put your doubler in a jam. It's going to put your safety in a jam. And here's also what it does, Alan. If they want to double using their safety and you have, let's say, Pitts and Tony on one side, and then on the other side, you got Grimes by himself. There's not a single person on their team that can run with Grimes on a go route or Copeland at all, period. And they're going to have to do that unless they're going to bring someone else back to play safety. So just by some very simple movements, you can create whatever matchup you want. And this is where Dan Mullen 2.0 gets creative saying, hey, I know that Ryan Walters doesn't have a single guy who can cover Tony or Pitts man-to-man. He cannot do it, which means he's got to be doubling one of them at least 80% of the game. And then occasionally his own. He has to do it, which means if you're Grimes, if you're Copeland, if you're any other Florida receiver, if you're Xavier Henderson, if you're Trent Whittemore, this is your game. You're going to get press man one-on-one with half a field to operate. And if you're Kyle Trask, this is your game. You're accurate. You're there. Let's see us manipulate their defensive formation to create obvious situations with a lot of field to throw to and then trust our O-line, which does hold up in pass protection decently well, to give Trask enough time to make those throws. This could be super fun, very interesting. Last time we played them, we just didn't have those kind of downfield combos. We weren't, I think, really ready. Dan Mullen's offense wasn't really necessarily built to be an all-passing attack on man press defense. It does seem like it is this year. So we should see a lot of new stuff from what we saw last year. And again, with with Pitts and Tony, it's a dream combination attacking a man defense. It's absolutely a dream. I'm sure Ryan Walters knows it, but he's going to die doing what he does. And by the way, I think what he does is correct. You've seen, Alan, that you cannot play zone against Kyle Trask. You just can't. 
So you take your chances, hope you get a pick, a tipped pass, whatever the case may be, trust your system, go against us. And if you're Dan Mullen, trust 2.0, go against them. The matchup does favor us, thankfully, because they don't have a good pass rush. But I would not expect us to be generating a lot on the ground. That would be the biggest surprise. If we were able to run the ball well at them, shocking surprise. Only Tennessee did. It was a weird game for them. They had no offense. They were turning the ball over. Outside of that, Bama had 100 yards. LSU had 50 yards. Kentucky, the number one rushing team in the SEC, had barely any yards. Couldn't get it going. Don't expect a lot out of the run game. This is going to be a Kyle Trask and wide receiver game all the way. Yeah, this is interesting. This is going to open us up. Like you said, opportunities for big plays down the field. And this offense has taken big chunks, especially those 20, 30 yard chunks that they've been eating up when they've, you know, actually had the ball. So this is set up for us to succeed well early on. This is really about do we capitalize? Do we make the right throws? Do our receivers come down with the ball? Do we not do anything stupid? I think we will be able to. And again, I don't want to see Missouri running. 90 plays on us, right? How many possessions does our offense have? Now, again, when you're aiming at those big plays, they're big plays, so they're risky. You you will miss some of them. And if you're getting very few possessions, that increases the level of, I don't know, riskiness, potential for bad things happening. So this game could go either way. We could see Florida, I think, winning by a lot if the defense is able to make Missouri play left-handed, you know, move the ball down the field, like you said. And Florida could just be rolling touchdown after touchdown, which would force Missouri even more into an extreme. We have to throw the ball downfield. So that would be the idea, I think, that this Florida team the whole time is that you're building a big lead. You make them one-dimensional. All of a sudden, you win by not just 15. You win by like 35 because you've made them play your game. We haven't been able to do that at all. Maybe Florida will get right a little bit. Anything else you want to say about Missouri no, I mean, I think that this is exciting for that reason. And that's that's it. There's a huge reason to be excited about this game as a Florida fan. And hopefully you as podcast listeners will get to get way beyond the typical Florida's versus Missouri. And Missouri's two and two and they're Missouri and really see the football. Because, again, as a football fan, as someone who likes X's and O's, who likes to watch the game at a chess level, there's a lot to love about what's going on in this game and, and a lot to love about Florida's strength versus this defense. And then, again, our defense can we change anything? This offense does pose a challenge for us. And can we eliminate the time of possession monster that has been killing us? Can we get on the right side or at least be 50-50 in time of possession? I mean, there's a lot of big questions that we're going to be asked. We will see how much COVID affects us, how much not practicing affects us. Missouri comes in just sky high, Allen, full of confidence, peaking right now with how they feel about their team. They've got a freshman quarterback that they're going to ride on. They've got a trusted running back. They like where they are right now, and they are they are itching, Alan. They are itching to etch their name on the national stage, and the win over Florida will do that. So Florida has everything to lose and nothing to gain in this game, which makes it dangerous and interesting. Yeah, they seem to be improving offensively. A, a, a really sound defense can keep them in check, certainly. Oh, absolutely. And that's what's interesting is, again, different. Give me a different. Give me Ryan Walters. Here's a question for you. Give me Ryan Walters on Florida. And I look at Missouri and think they're not going to score more than 17 and they're going to struggle because they're not there yet. They shouldn't be there yet. That's not a knock on them. But that to me is the difference. I think Grantham is potentially 15 to 20 points worse in a high level matchup than Walters would be if you gave Walter talent just based on the soundness of the scheme on film. And that's a lot of points. 
I think the evidence would bear it out. I have no way to prove that because, again, Missouri, you are playing one-arm time behind your back when you have inferior athletes playing man. It's almost suicidal, yet he does it and does it well. Go look up Missouri's defensive ranks, despite who they play every single year, and see why Drinkwitz retained him, Allen. You don't see that very often. Right. He kept him on that staff. Tells you a lot about what they think about a guy like him. Okay, let's talk about some of our categories. Um, special teams edge for Florida. Florida has been excellent as usual this year. Penalties, slight edge for Florida. Neither team very heavily penalized, obviously. Turnover margin, slight edge for Florida, despite the fact that the Gators have created almost no turnovers this season. And neither does Missouri. Yeah. They're kind of similar that way. They don't get a lot of turnovers. They don't turn it over too much. It's it's kind of mirror image in that regard. So that could be a very telling stat by the end of this game. Uh, our injuries, updates, uh, nothing really to share. I do think Florida will probably be down some guys due to lingering COVID quarantines. We don't have any idea who that will be. Are they significant starters? I think Florida has the depth to replace lots of people on the team, especially offensively, and still be effective um, as long as it's not Kyle Trask. Uh, And he should be fine, hopefully, if uh, the rumors are true. You know, will we see Ethan White in this game? Probably not. Will we see Kyrie Campbell in this game? Maybe. Rumors, maybe. We'll see. That would help this defense tremendously, theoretically. Yeah, hopefully. And if you're like us at the pod, you're you're frustrated that Dan Mullen won't come out and be a little bit more forthcoming. You know, we don't understand why. We don't have to love the media and love giving stuff to journalists, but there is part of being a leader where you could you could let on a little more than he does. The sort like the sort of super cryptic. I'm not going to tell anyone anything about anyone. I don't know. Yeah. I don't get it. But we don't know, and yeah. it's subterfuge. And if you like, if that's your view of like, that's it. You know, keeping every advantage for yourself, potentially. You know, I yeah. think it's a little over the top personally, but let's talk about the game itself, James. What do we think is going to happen? All right, so keys to the game. I'm going to start with the defense, and we're going to go macro because I've already gone through micro. And now that we have film on Tuesdays coming out, I can actually show you micro plays and what's happening. So macro, here's the macro. Florida's defense, stop being soft. Stop being bend but don't break. It's time to be high risk, high reward. So again, back to leveling and game theory. If you're not good at playing a conservative defensive game where you're sort of sitting back and you're letting teams attack you and you're opportunistically stopping them, stop doing it. When you have such a great offense, you should go high risk, high reward, be super disruptive, play absolutely manic, and trust that if you even get four stops a game, you're going to win, right? So increase the risk, increase the variance. Oh, by the way, I actually think our personnel suits itself well by playing the right players, which again, we're not going to go into. If you want to hear those comments, check out our previous podcast this year. We go in-depth on scheme, personnel, etc. But as a macro level, Alan, amp up the aggressiveness. Stop playing too deep. Stop playing afraid to get beat deep. Get up there, disrupt routes, play aggressive, send guys at the quarterback. Don't, don't try to load your numbers one way or the other and make this freshman quarterback beat you. Make him score 35 points against tight-windowed, principled, solid defense. And don't be afraid to get beat deep. And tell your players, it's okay if you get beat deep. Because the next play, you're right back in there. He's going to have to put another one up there, and you're going to get another chance to make a play. And on offense, as we say each and every week, Alan, it's going to really come down to just 
Can we execute against a team that's going to play so much man against us consistently? Can the offensive line hold up? DeLance is the only one I have a pass blocking concerned with. Are they able to steal a few plays because they get past DeLance and they wind up stripping the ball? Who knows what, right? Outside of that, I'm not worried about us passing on them. Can we run on them? Probably not. So my one key, yet again, this could be the key for all of these opponents that are worse than us, is simply this, time of possession. If Missouri gets more than 34 minutes, 60 minutes in a game, if they get more than 34 minutes of time of possession, this game could be uncomfortably close. Uncomfortably close. There is no chance ever Missouri can win this game if they get equal time of possession to us or fewer. It just can't happen. It won't happen. So that's it. Watch that one thing. That's all you have to look at. What's that TOP say? Of course, we could win if they get more than that, but our odds of winning shrink with each minute they get past 34. So for me, that is the key to the game is time of possession. It needs to be less than 34 minutes for Missouri. If it is, it's like a 100% chance we win, in my opinion. So this is interesting. You know, we looked at the A&M defense and what they were going to present in terms of those kind of coverages, and it, they were going to invite you to be risky, right? You just had to kind of take what they're going to give you. There's going to be windows. Are you patient? This is maybe the opposite. Are you aggressive enough, right? So I would say how many 30-yard plays do we have is a really key stat. Um the offense, like I said, I think will I'm expecting them to do this, right? Uh, and maybe even, you know, maybe protect a little more than you even normally would. If you feel like your receiver is going to get loose and you've got the matchup coverages, maybe leave that running back in there. Maybe don't send the tight end out on certain plays. Um, I don't know that you have to flood receivers to be effective against this team if you can win those one-on-one matchups. Defensively, it's hard to even talk about what I want us to do because improve everything is is not really a, a healthy conversation. I'm really interested to see what we do. I'm not hopeful that it's going to be awesome or better in tons of ways, but our, I'm really interested to see who we roll out onto the field and who's playing what position. Uh, I want I want to see us be much more aggressive as you said not just in our tactical like blitzing but how far are we off the line of scrimmage our corners should be able to cover their receivers enough that playing close to the line of scrimmage won't murder you now if you have terrible corners and you're going up against Jalen Waddle and he's just going to run past you every time that's not a super sound strategy all the time but we should be able to at least be competent enough in this area where you can just say to our guys hey cover this guy they like to run these kind of routes. So we'll see. Okay, I get to ask you your score prediction first. So Florida obviously is just so hard. This could go so many directions. If you're a hopeful Gator fan, you say, hey, we had this time off. We got the defense fixed. And I'll, I'll give you a, a score range for you. If you're that person, you think, hey, the defense is going to get fixed. We're going to make a big change. This is a game that Florida wins, you know, mid-40s to to 17 or 20. That's what that looks like. Easy cover, easy win, domination. If you find yourself more in the middle ground, defense is more of what it is, probably going to be what we've seen before. This game is probably somewhere between high 30s and high 40s for Florida to high 20s and low 30s for Missouri, which is what that spread indicates. I, of course, think that's what it's going to be. Uh, And so I'm going to take Florida in this one 45. I'm going to take Missouri 
30. So a slight cover. So a slight cover. 15 is what the line opened at. That feels right to me. But again, probably pretty nervy depending on what happens. But this is a game that I certainly wouldn't bet on. And I've bet on the Gators before, only ever to win. But there's games you feel good about because we it's just it's too unknown. Our defense is not something you should ever bet on or think about betting on. But I think in most scenarios, Alan, the game functions something like that. That's what I'm going to go with, 45-30. Yeah, I'm I'm split between those two narratives myself. Um, and it's tempting to pick a middle ground. But you're probably wrong in the middle ground. It's either probably going to go one way or the other. Um, I'm hopeful our defense is going to be a little more competent. Not excellent, competent. This is a, a offense that you, if you look at them, you could go, okay, we could do this. I don't know that we will. Um, I'm I'm with you on the Gator side of it. And again, this is funny because the the more that they stay on the field, the lower our score is going to be. Now I think that's counterbalanced by the fact that we could score quickly. So again, if we're scoring in like three plays every time, their time of possession will go up just because ours will be so low. Uh. I'm with you on this 45 mark. I'm going to go 44-24. And so that's a little more reflective of, I think, the defense is slightly more capable. Now, this, again, I think it gets shrunk. Like, if we're if they're eating away at this, then we're probably at, like, it's probably like 38-30 we win this game, maybe if it's really tight. And when you're in those type of ballgames, you don't want to, like, see Missouri there because they're going to keep – being efficient and effective and waiting for you to make a mistake. And if you do, you're going to lose. How, how realistic is it in your opinion that we lose this game? Does it feel like there's any chance we lose? Oh, certainly. I mean, I, I wouldn't say our defense is any more capable than LSU's and they got torched and LSU put up, it would be like we would lose 45, 40 or something. It would be like that same LSU game. I agree. It, it is possible. It's obviously less scary than AM, which we talked about. And that's funny because totally different defensive style, totally different situations. I think already that uh, that Basilak is a much more competent and accurate passer than Mond is. Footwork's better. Everything's better. But he's still baby-stepping his way into actually running a playbook. And we gave Mond everything he wanted. And you saw him have a career game against us. And if we give Basilak everything he wants, he's going to execute at a ruthlessly high level. He did it to LSU. He was 29 of 34 for 400 plus yards against them as a true freshman. So yeah, you've got to really look at the LSU film and say, are we that much different than LSU? And the answer is, is no, we're not. Sad. We're not. We're just not. So what happens? We don't know. In my opinion, though, Alan, unlike the AM game where I felt like it was possible we could lose that game. There were ways things would go wrong for us, and it was because of our defense. This one, although I still think it's the same, it's a tall order for a true freshman to do it. Even though he's already done it against LSU and it's already happened, we're not LSU this year. We aren't in the mental space LSU is in, which is a lot of it too. So this would be a very unlikely loss for us, but at the same time, it would not be shocking given the film. That's what's interesting. Very unlikely, but also certainly possible. Missouri is a capable football team. Right. This isn't like a vintage Florida team playing against a vintage Vanderbilt where it's like you could play this game a thousand times and I don't know if we'd lose any of them. Maybe we'd have to fumble every snap. That's well said. Yeah. So you're right. They are a dangerous team. They will beat you, obviously. So, you know, maybe there's hope if you want to connect Ty Grantham and Bo Pelini as being 
you know, of the same ilk behind the times, old school guy, formerly effective, now less so. LSU did things with their bye week and they held Carolina 24 points and they won with a true freshman quarterback. So, and Ed O has been voiceless out in the public saying our defense is bad. It's got to get fixed. I'm going to go work on it. Whereas we've had Dan Mullen utter a few words. So maybe Dan's all behind the scenes, which we're going to hope so. Well, the proof will be in the pudding here. I, I do we're going to find out. This isn't an offense that's going to, like you said, be so crazy that it's almost impossible to prepare for, even in the best of times. We could prepare for them. Will we do so is the big question for us. Okay, James, I'm going to thank a few more patrons. So these are more longtime people, patrons of the show. I'll go ahead and uh, mention a few of them now. Tim. Hello, Tim. Evan Fitzgerald, Joshua Java Harry. Java, Han- congrats on first child for Java. Oh. No sleep for him and his wife, but they're still listening to the podcast, which yeah. much love. Been there. Hans Lopez. My guy from college, Hans Lopez, by the way. He was vicious in Halo with a shotgun. Do mm. not do not be in a hallway with him in Halo 1. I will not. Larry Medvinsky. The aforementioned Bobby Boucher. The legend. Bobby yeah, there Boucher. you go. Alex Brow. Peter Galarte, John Curto, Christina Frost, Michael Varley, Mark Mitchell, Donnie Mathis, Ryan McCann. Ryan McCann. Got to give a shout out to the McCanns. Yeah. Ryan Roberts, uh, one of my best friends. He's now married into that family. Thanks, Ryan, for listening. Chris Glazier. Willie Taggart still supporting the show. Hey, Man, Willie. Good to, good to have you here, Willie. Hopefully you're picking up some concepts. Yeah. Maybe you know some improvement down the road for Willie. Dylan Fay, Stephen Cruz. What's up, Stephen? Jo- or excuse me, Scott Evely, Joshua Wu, longtime jo- friend. Oh, uh, Joshua, ours. yeah. Good, good, good long-term friend and excellent flag football player. Very fast. Fast Wu, actually. Nickname there for Josh. Donald L. Hersey. Randall Lockhart. Someone who would like to be known as TLT. There you go. Colin Crable. And Marshall and Kathy Gallup. Thank you guys so much. Hope you're enjoying the show this season. Okay, let's talk about the national games this week, uh, you know, a few a few good ones. No, nothing star studded, considering we had Penn State, you know, eat it against Indiana here. But we'll, there's some fun ones here. Let's start off with number nine Wisconsin minus seven and a half at Nebraska. Wisconsin, their freshman star Graham Mertz played fantastic in their opener. Maybe is not playing this game because of COVID. We'll see. And that's why this line is at seven and a half is what do you do now? Who do you go behind? And Nebraska was competent. Ohio State's extremely good. I don't think Nebraska feels down about their performance per se. I don't know. This game is, again, don't touch this game no, when you no. have those kind of unknowns. So we're just going to spitball here. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna say that he doesn't play. He has to wind up with, the, with also, by the way, Alan, with the Big Ten, we talked about this. He's going to be out for 21 days. If it's wind up a confirmed positive, which means he'll be out for the next three games, which is, I don't know how they're going to handle these things, but I'm going to take Nebraska seemingly healthy, not affected by COVID as of recording date here to get under this seven and a half against the Wisconsin team. That's taking maybe a huge emotional blow. If they lose their star, right, this is assuming that he's not there. If, if he's he playing, there. I'm all over Wisconsin. Agreed. So I will be with you on Nebraska there. Okay. Number 17, Indiana. Love these guys. Minus 12 at Rutgers. So we did not mention this game yet. Last week, Rutgers, Greg Schiano's debut, just wrecks Michigan State in Mel Tucker's debut. 
So, I mean, that's the first Rutgers Big Ten win in, like, I think three decades, even though they've only been in the conference for a few years. But, but I mean, great job by them. What's with Greg Schiano's magic at Rutgers? I don't know. He can't coach very well anywhere else. But at Rutgers... It's a spot, man. I this don't is, really understand. The group. I mean, I, yeah, watch it's, out for them. It feels like Rutgers can't be good enough yet to play with an Indiana team that is obviously very competent. But probably not so divergent talent levels no in fact barely divergent just further along in the process but alan are you gonna take records i don't know because i tend to think when you have that kind of win typically the week after you come back down to earth and Rutgers had a nice win but indiana is feeling themselves right now so without obviously watching any film on Rutgers, and that's the danger (laughs) here i don't know i'm I'm gonna take Rutgers with the emotional reasoning i just gave okay i'm gonna go indiana uh, that number 12 is low enough. I, If it was higher than 14, I would have taken Rutgers, though. So it's pretty close for me. All right, Boston College, who's been, you know, competent. Yeah, good four football and, team. Four and two. Yeah. Solid, solid start for half. At number one, Clemson, who's favored by 31. So what do, what do you want to do with Clemson this week? This is our, our weekly question here. So back into the emotional playbook here. Boston College and the job that Jeff Halfley's done there, former Ohio State D.C., is fantastic really good start i think he's probably pretty sad that clemson just played as bad as they did last week because he knows they're about to get the full attention buzzsaw clemson this week i don't i don't think boston college is is ready to stop a fully focused intent on crushing them clemson team i don't like the line at all though alan and i don't like betting clemson as a heavy favorite i'm gonna take them here but these these are coin flips i'm gonna go boston college i I think Clemson wins handily, but you could win by 30, which is quite handily in a conference game and still not cover this spread. And BC's been good. So, yeah, yeah. This, is, this is interesting. And they can't score. So, we'll see. Again, I would never bet any of these Clemson lines unless it was just absurdly low. All right. The aforementioned Michigan State, who just, I mean, the worst loss imaginable. At number 13, Michigan. Michigan favored by 25 in a rivalry game. Yeah, this is wild. I'm going to stick with the theme of the week for me, apparently, which is Halloween emotion here. Michigan riding really high. Great debut. Gets their rival that's riding low in the midst of a transition, changing the identity of the team. I like Michigan here to win this one. I don't think Michigan State has any defense whatsoever this season, and their offense, of course, is always a question mark. I'm going to take Michigan to cover this one. I guess i got to take Michigan, though. All of this number is way too high for me to feel comfortable about saying it with any conviction. I mean, they very well could win by 25, but I, I don't trust them after one game yet to do that. But their win against Minnesota was very compelling. Again, we're just as one data point. It can lead you in a lot of stray directions. So unless you're just very confident in that data point, be very careful here with these Big Ten teams. All right, number 16, Kansas State at West Virginia. West Virginia, I'm playing well. They're favored by three and a half. Let that sink in. Kansas State. We talked about Kansas State. Yeah. And we talked about them because they were on the real bad end of a loss early on. They were. Where one game does not, in fact, make your football team. So a good example that one game does not define you. Kansas State has a history of sort of getting better as the year goes on with their current coaching staff. And I'm going to buy into that. I'm going to take Kansas State getting some points here. Yeah, I mean, West Virginia, they've played well in a lot of games, but I don't know, losing to Texas Tech, I think 
who's a solid team for sure. All these big 12 teams seem like they are exactly the same. Like anyone could beat anyone on any weekend. So I guess Kansas State getting points, I need to take them. All right. Memphis at number seven, Cincinnati, led by your boy Luke Fickle. They are favored by only six and a half. What do you think about that? That here is the curious line of the week. It's here. Take it. Jump all over this. You should never use common opponents as a reason to bet on someone, but obviously I've already staked my claim to Luke Fickle being the next big coach. Memphis and SMU played a thriller of a close game. Cincinnati beat SMU like a drum last week. They're feeling great. Their Halloween emotions running high. I'm all over six and a half points here. I'm taking it all the way. Memphis has put up big points in every game, except against SMU, which held them down a little bit. I think Cincinnati is going to be able to hold them at bay. I, six and a half is not that much. So if you feel like Cincinnati is going to win this game, I'll be with you on that one. All right, number five, Georgia, minus 14 and a half at Kentucky. How are you feeling about Georgia this week? Does that- Second really curious line of the week. Kentucky has no offense. None. We just talked about how Missouri completely shut Kentucky down. And Allen, spoiler alert, spoiler Georgia man. also entirely capable of playing NFL style on the line of scrimmage defense, which I expect them to do against Kentucky. So is Georgia? Can Georgia win twenty to three? Of course they can. I mean, that's likely. Can they win twenty-seven to ten? Of course they can. So I'm taking Georgia. There's a lot of ways they win by more than fourteen and a half here. I'm taking Georgia. Same. I, I think Kentucky keeps it close early. I mean, they they will hurt you defensively if you let them. I, I don't know that Georgia is going to like pounce on them and just crush them early on, but I do think this game will get away from them late. We're we're together on all these teams. I don't know if that's good or bad. We'll see how we do this week. Uh, LSU, now favored by three at Auburn. This is such a zany year. This is zany. So many teams are... Normally you have like some juggernauts predictable, predictable. You get a nice line. This one, it feels curious to me. Auburn has obviously had the rabbit's foot, but Auburn is not anywhere near the capability of LSU's offense. And LSU's offense, Allen has scored on everyone. Auburn's defense is still nice this year. They're still fine. They still present a challenge. They can still play. But can Auburn score 30-plus points again with sort of wizardry and magic and everything else they do to beat LSU again? I think their magic has to run out here, and I'm going to take LSU winning by more than a field goal. Well, LSU would seem to really struggle against teams that can throw the ball, and I don't know that Auburn can throw the ball well enough to hurt them. Man, I would not bet this game in a million years. I have, <laughs> I Auburn could win by twenty. Auburn could lose by twenty. But I'll go with you on LSU. That performance is coloring a lot of my opinion on this. Man, that, that's really interesting. It's gonna be fun to watch. I'll definitely enjoy that one. Okay, Texas at number six, Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State favored by three and a half. Again, really interesting. Texas has not played well, not looked good. Oklahoma State here hasn't looked amazing, but they've gotten wins. Three and a half is is a line that got me last time with Oklahoma State. It did. It got me and it got me good. And so far, Alan, we've picked the same in every pick but one, which has not happened at all this year. I think we're going to be in the same one this one too. Are you going to go? Are you I mean, go opposite I, trend here? Just I, to do I, it? I don't know. I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm. I've already talked about how Mike Gundy's my guy. 
He's a consistent, consistent coach. And Tom Herman has proven to be the opposite. He's not consistent. So I don't like three and a half. I think this game is going to certainly be close. Texas, as I've said before, tends to play really close games which is why I should go for Texas. But I'm tired of, of picking Texas because they, they lose tired. for me seemingly all the time. So let's ride the Gundy Mola train here and see where it takes me. I do think Oklahoma State is going to lose one of these games that we're expecting them to, to win because we're saying that they're the favorite. I don't have a good feel for the Texas team this year. I don't know that anybody does. I, I don't know. James, are you... Would you give Tom Herman a pass on this year? Are you are you just out hard? No, I mean no. Okay, if I'm Texas, I'm hiring Luke Fickle and I'm getting rid of Tom Herman. The three year test has happened. He's failed. He's gone. He's recruiting really well, but my methodology would say I'm on to the next rising. Even star. in a COVID year, I don't care if it's COVID year or not. Coach your team. Okay, man. I there's a there's a feeling for me that they're just going to win this game outright for some reason. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go Texas. I'm just gonna totally deviate here. That's a perfectly fine pick. This is an absolutely zany game. <laughs> okay, the Fighting Mike Leeches of Mississippi State at number two Alabama. Alabama favored by a healthy 31 or a conservative 31, depending on how you want to talk about them. Yeah, Mississippi State's defense is pretty decent, which is where I think this 31 comes from. Uh, I mean, Mississippi State is can't score at all and Alabama is interesting we've talked a lot about their pattern matching pattern matching is not really great to run against the air raid at least not consistently because coaches like Mike Leach will abuse the fact that you're pattern matching if you don't know what pattern matching is it's where you look like you're in man defense but if uh, if if your receiver runs like a quick route then you pass it off to your your teammate and vice versa and that's overly simplifying it but you get the idea you can mess these exchanges up with good routes if Alabama just came out, Allen, and played really sound drop eight defense every single time, like Arkansas and other teams have done, which is not what Bama wants to do or likes to do, I don't know if Mississippi State can score a single point on them. So the question here for me is, does Bama do want do? to do that? Do they want to be a very tactical-oriented game plan team like the NFL would be, or do they want to do what Nick Saban typically does, which is play their base defense? Of course, they'll make changes and things, but play their base defense, work on their guys covering a man, work on playing through that, which is a valid strategy. That's where this all hinges to me. With all that being said, I'm so off the Mississippi State train this year. They don't have a quarterback that can possibly run that offense right now that I got to take Bama. Yeah, me too. Uh, I mean, Mississippi State, since that LSU win, which now we understand is not as impressive as it looked in week one, they've scored 14 points, two points, and 14 points. So I expect Bama to score, I don't know, 40? Oh, easy. Yeah. yeah they're going to be high 40s for sure. So do they hold them under that? I mean, it's that's why these. It's not easy. Are, that's yeah. why you can't, you don't touch, you don't bet these 31 point games. Yeah. That's, unless you have a system I don't know about, write me about it. But normally don't bet these. We do them on the show because they're absurdly fun to try to project, but. Good luck with that. Yeah, it's a good way to talk about how much better, because, of course, no one is picking Mississippi State in this game. But it gets fun when you put that 31 up there. Okay, Arkansas, the frisky Razorbacks at number eight, Texas A&M. Texas A&M favored by 11. How are you feeling about this one? This is why coaching is so great, Alan, and why I love doing the podcast. If you would have told me before the year that A&M would be at home, 
ranked number eight, one loss to Bama, win over us, playing Arkansas, favored by 11, I would have said, back up the Brinks truck, I'm all in. But I feel the opposite. I feel like back the Brinks truck up, I'm all over Arkansas. And again, I've watched some film on Arkansas. I've watched tons of film on AM. Arkansas is going to absolutely befuddle Kellen Mond and his horrifically bad reading of defenses. They are going to mess with him so badly, Alan. I don't know how AM can possibly get up enough on them. Felipe Franks is, is what he is. He doesn't turn the ball over very often. All of the zone concepts from Elko are going to clearly blow Felipe's mind, but he doesn't read defenses anyway. He just runs around and drops off simple passes and throws it to guys' chests and occasionally throws a deep ball. So to me, this game feels very much like some sort of 24 to 17 or some game that's closer than 11. So I'm taking Arkansas, which again, utterly shocking and an incredible testament to the job that Sam Pittman and Barry Odom have done on that team. I'm going to have to join you here. This feels weird. I, again, that on one hand, that number feels very low when you just look at the two teams, but I do think this is going to be close. I mean, uh, A&M has, uh, has played some closer games than you would want them to if you're an A&M fan. I, I, you know, if this number was lower, I would look at A&M. If it was higher, I would definitely like Arkansas a lot more. It's right about that line that feels iffy to me. I, Arkansas feels like they're a team that's going to cover. So Agreed. there you go. Okay. Let's see if we only have one divergent pick or maybe two divergent picks here. Uh, number three, Ohio State, favored by number, by only 13 at Penn State. Back the truck up and give me Ohio State. Oh, man. Under 14 Back here. it. Back it up. Load it up. I can't simultaneously say that I think Ohio State is one of the best teams in the country this year, and they're loaded. If they cannot beat Penn State, rivalry, I get it. If they can't beat them by more than two scores, then this will raise a lot of questions for me about Ohio State's actual contender ability, even though it's only week two. So I'm all on Ohio State. Yeah, give me Ohio State here. That under 14 just feels like you have to take them here. Now, again, they played some close games against Penn State over the years, and Penn State has either won or almost won several of these games. I don't think talent-wise, Penn State's missing their best people. Mike, Micah Parsons, Journey Brown, they are not what they could be entering this season. I think they felt that against Indiana. So there you go. Ohio state. We'll see. Can you get it done? Anything else you want to talk about? Any other items here? I'm really excited about the Gators being back again uh, in college football. And, And you mentioned something I didn't get to talk about. So I'll just spend a second talking about it here. Never in my football life. Have you watched two weekends in a row of college football in the middle of a season, not have Florida in it. And for those of you that have friends that don't have a team to root for or went to small schools where they don't have an allegiance, you could kind of recognize what that felt like. I love watching football. I enjoy watching all these games because I love it at a coaching level. But the magic of, of your team is what makes it so special. What you feel, having the emotional connection just makes it interactive and special. So I am really excited, obviously, about that, despite the frustrations, despite the fact that I can go out there and say it really frustrates me. I'm, you know, the efficiency person to me is annoyed. The connection you have to your team at times befuddles logic, and I'm very logical. It's like, why do I even care? Why do I feel attached to this? Why do I love doing it so much? Right, despite the time we invest. But that is the magic of of having football and having it tied to your team and, and living in the South, of course, along with that. So I'm stoked about that being back. Uh, I can't wait to see you know what happens for all these football reasons we talked about. And hopefully, Alan, we can make it through the rest of the season because, as we mentioned before, 
we are on thin ice with regards to flexibility schedule wise. So let's just cross our fingers and hope this was the end, at least for Florida, uh, to be able to make it through the rest of the year. And you've got nothing. Great. That's it. That means it's time to close. Thanks as always for listening to this pod. You can catch us each and every week here as we drop a new app for you. And you can also catch us on YouTube at the Gator Nation Football Podcast. Subscribe there as well. Send us your comments, your feedback. Follow us, like us on social media. And as always, drop us a dono on Patreon. Become a supporter where we will shower you with love each and every year. Thanks to all of you. Go Gators. Have a great Halloween. Imagine right now that there is the Monster Mash playing in the background as this ends. Just do it for me. And we'll see you in November. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.